0: Let's open our copies of God's word once again to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 through 23. Colossians 2:16 through 23. Now, these verses are thick. I certainly am not going to say everything about them that could be said, but um, try and shake off any lethargy that's happened because of this barbaric time change, and, uh, and let's uh, pay good attention to uh, the word that is before us this morning. Let's pray before we read. Our Father and our God, we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that you will hear our prayer, that your Holy Spirit will bless the word to the hearts and lives of your people and to those who may be among us today who are lost and undone and who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use this word to conform us to the image of your Son Father, we are aware of how throughout church history at various times and in various places, you have used weak human instruments in the proclamation of your word, and a spark has gone forth that has struck the forest, and the fire has been lighted, and it spreads far and wide. Oh, how we long for that, for reformation and renewal in the church, in our land, and in other lands on this day. Hear our prayer. May it begin even here with us. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. This is the word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now people of God, you will remember that the Apostle Paul in verses 14 and 15 has spoken of the triumph of the cross. He says, we have been forgiven of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And by proclaiming this, the Apostle Paul has proclaimed that the work of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Another high point in the epistle was concluded when we studied those verses last week. Now this deserves underscoring. The hallmark of every cult is that though it speaks of grace and though it speaks of Jesus, it nonetheless adds to Christ and to his work in one way or another. And that's what's happening at Colossae as the heretics are coming in and speaking of Jesus and speaking of grace, but Jesus plus. Ideas have consequences. A false view of Christ, of his person and of his work will also lead to a false view of living and that is the focus of Paul in this section it is a focus on false living that results from a false gospel and so with Paul who preached about the sufficiency of the cross and with his words from chapter 2 14 and 15 ringing in our ears let's see how this applied then and there and how it applies here and now And so as we move into the text, the first thing that we see in the text is that the cross and asceticism are incompatible. The cross and asceticism are incompatible. Notice verses 16 and 17 again, "...therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." When the cross is denied or obscured or minimized, inevitably it leads to one of two approaches in life. It leads to legalism, adding new laws and incredible burdens as if these things were making us acceptable to God. Or it leads to antinomianism, the viewpoint that it doesn't matter how we live. Now in these verses it's legalism that is focused upon, though antinomianism will be dealt with by Paul later. Now both of these viewpoints misunderstand the place of the law in the Christian life but also the place of the gospel to transform the human heart. And Paul sees in verses 16 and 17 that the Colossian heretics would be misled into rigid asceticism if they were as a church to follow the heretics they would be led in a denial of the cross of Christ and its freedom. The canceling of the debt by Christ on the cross should keep us from falling prey to this nonsense. And again, cults always try to raise the barrier of the law as a way of acceptance with God or additional laws by which we think that somehow God is more pleased with us. But why did Christ die? Didn't he pay the debt? Didn't he remove the curse? Didn't he nail your IOU to the cross? The law that was against you has been nailed to the cross. And so the Apostle Paul says, if you follow these heretics, it's going to work out in a couple of different ways in the church. Uh, It will work out in your following dietary laws that will become incredibly burdensome to you. And so he says, let no one therefore judge you in eating or drinking. And here he pleads for liberty from the dietary laws of the Jewish establishment. Now remember, there's a Jewish element mixed up with the proto-Gnosticism in Colossae. Or, he says, in addition to that, there will be ritualistic error that will be incredibly burdensome. He says, or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, parenthetical comment, I do not believe this has anything whatsoever to do with the fourth commandment. It has nothing to do with setting aside one day in seven for spiritual refreshment. And I don't have time to unpack that, but for those of you who want to know more, I can certainly give you some good direction about how to think about this. But the point that the apostle is making is that we will be associating ourselves with innumerable special Sabbath celebrations that are practiced in Judaism and we will come again under the legalistic burden of Judaism if we follow the Colossian heretics. And these things he says are a shadow notice here in verse 17 they are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Old Testament ritual was a shadow that pointed to Christ, the substance Christ himself has come, he has fulfilled these things, and in his cross they have been set aside. You read the same thing, for example, in Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And so he goes on to say that since the shadow has been fulfilled in the substance, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Or we could say it is impossible for following, from following dietary laws or Jewish ritual or works righteousness, whatever may be. It is impossible for us to be redeemed from our sins or to be made acceptable before God by these things. Basically the heretics are looking out over the Colossian congregation and they're saying something like this, you just don't get it. Look at how deep and rich and wonderful our philosophy is. Don't you understand how wonderful it is and can't you see how superior it is to the gospel that's preached by Epaphras and by Paul? It's okay as far as it goes, but we need to add to that these significant things You need to follow our rituals, and you need to submit to our regulations if you're really going to be spiritual. And Paul answers, what? Add to the work of Christ? Detract from Christ? No. It is Christ or nothing. It is Christ or no one. There is no other Savior than Christ. Do not follow these false teachers in their legalism. Do not go back. Now, there are many places in the New Testament in which Paul has dealt with this matter. The whole book of Galatians is an example, of course, with the Judaizers. But turn, if you will, keeping your finger in in Colossians, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just notice another place in which asceticism comes to the fore in the Apostle Paul's denunciation of false teachers. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and following, here is another example. Paul says now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith and how will they depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And there the Apostle Paul puts his finger on something that I will later mention that asceticism is a denial of the goodness of God and the good world that he has created. So the cross and asceticism are incompatible. But then the Apostle works his way through his argument and he says secondly the cross permits no other mediator than Christ. So in Colossians 2 18 and 19 he says let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. The cross qualifies you. Don't set aside the cross. The heretics are saying, you're not following our worship of angels, our ascetic lifestyle. You're not having our mystical experiences. What kind of Christian do you call yourself? You really want to be spiritual? Then come with us, imbibe our philosophy, drink in our experiences, and then you'll really be free. And it must have been very intimidating, especially for timid souls in particular, to hear the heretics Push and pressure them in these ways. But Paul says don't let him disqualify you by feigned humility. What Hendrickson calls a thin disguise for insufferable pride. After all where will it get you? Is it going to help you to become more holy? Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, apparently, as we see in verse 18, there was angel worship going on by heretics that have invaded the church at Colossae. We don't know much about this. Perhaps they were considered emanations, eons, that had come from God into this world as mediators, such as is found in the later Gnosticism. Uh, maybe the false teacher said, we're too lowly to approach God directly, and so we'll come through angels. Again, false pride. Those of you who have looked at Hendrickson on Colossians, there are two wonderful pages in which Hendrickson unpacks in some depth and detail of the angel worship that was rife in ancient cults in the ancient world. But the whole point is this, in setting forth the worship of angels they are denying the mediation of Christ. They are denying that Jesus Christ is the only appointed mediator between God and man. And the insistence upon false worship and asceticism comes from a mind, Paul says, that is puffed up with its own sense of self-importance by what they consider to be mystical knowledge. And they were inflated with self-importance because of their supposed visions and experiences. And Paul says in verse 19, don't you see the problem? The problem is they are not holding fast Christ who is The head. Verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now you remember how Paul has addressed this. Turn back to chapter 1. And in verses 15 and following, these glorious, glowing words about the person and work of Christ. Remember what he says about Christ in chapter 115 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so I ask you, if they are not holding to Christ the head, who is the only head and king of the church? Who? Christ. And they are not holding fast the head. And so in substituting angels and asceticism for God's own son, they are not holding to the head. And the cults today do not hold fast the head. And spiritualism does not hold to the head. And new age Gnosticism does not hold to the head. And you are called to hold fast Christ the head. Because Paul says in verse 19 that the church's growth and nourishment is derived from Christ, her head. That there's an inseparable connection between Christ and the church. And it is the head from whom our nourishment takes place. Now let me take a moment to simply say to you once again that head and body in Paul, despite what you may have been taught in the past... Head and body in Paul does not form a composite metaphor. He does not have in mind Christ is the head and the church is the torso. That's not what he means. I could demonstrate for example in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where head is simply a part of the body. He is not saying Christ is head, church is torso. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that at all. He means this. Let me give you this example. Just as in marriage, the husband is the head of the wife, his body. Doesn't mean head and torso, does it? They're distinguishable metaphors. Just as the wife is to be nourished by the head, so the church is to be nourished by her head. Headship means a position of rule. Headship means a position of authority. Christ is head over all things and over the church. And the church cannot expect to grow, to be nourished, when she sets aside the absolute authority of Christ over her and over the universe. Again, think of marriage as an illustration. Suppose there is a godly husband, the head. He really loves the Lord and he really loves his wife. And he is doing everything he can to nourish his body, his wife. He holds a position of authority. She is his body, his cherished, nourished body. He wants to see her grow. But what happens if she says, I'm going to set all of that aside. I'm not going to follow his loving leadership. I don't care if the Lord has ordained it. Will she grow in her relationship with her husband? No. Will she grow in her relationship with the Lord? No, so it is. Christ is the head, the sovereign, the source of the church's authority. We are his body. And when we as a body set aside that authority, we will not grow and we will not be nourished. Is that clear? That's what Paul is saying here. Or to use Ephesians 4, we will not be kept from every wind of doctrine and the craftiness of human error when we sever ourselves from his authority, which the Lord exercises, by the way, through his word. That's his authority over us. And that is what the Colossian heretics are doing. And it is a constant temptation from generation to generation through the church To whittle away at the authority and headship and kingship of Christ over the church. It is the greatest temptation to the church. And let me say, it is the greatest temptation in your lives as well as Christians. The greatest temptation is to whittle away at the authority, the headship, the kingship, the lordship of Christ in our lives. That's our greatest temptation It might be in doctrine. Oh, I see this doctrine in the Bible, but it just doesn't fit my view of who God is, and so I don't accept it. Or it might be in your lives. It might be an ethical decision, or business practice, or sexual influence of the world, or marital responsibilities, or a child in rebellion against parental authority. In every case, who is the head and king of the church? Christ. Who has the right to determine how you and I live and think? Christ. No one but Christ. Nothing but Christ. No one and nothing can be put above him. And so he says if you follow the heresies that are being promulgated here, if you do that, you are setting aside the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. Hold fast the head. Then the apostle Paul goes on and he says the cross must determine our ethics. A little more specifically, the cross determines our ethics and this he says in verses 20 through 23. Let's reread these verses. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if you with Christ have died to the elemental spirits of the world, he says, what does that mean? Have you ever wondered? What does Paul mean? If we're going to read the text, we need to understand what it means, right? What does it mean when he speaks of the elemental spirits of the world? It must be important. Paul uses it again in Galatians chapter 4 in a very similar context. The term stoicheia, elemental spirits, was used in ancient paganism of the elements, earth, air, fire, water, behind which were supposed false gods and false notions that were associated with them. Coming along with those elemental spirits was following a pagan calendar and following pagan rituals. Basically what Paul is saying then is this. Don't go back to pagan thought and practice. Don't go back to following a pagan calendar or even a Jewish one. Do not go back to ethical practices that are associated with paganism. Don't go back to those things from which you have been freed in Christ. Don't go back to a thought life from which the cross has freed you. Don't go back to a way of life from which the cross has set you free. Don't return to enslaving idolatry because it's worldliness, he says in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? You see, we're dead to the world. We are alive to Christ. That's his point. Don't go back. Don't go back to this sinful age in contrast with the age to come to which we are now committed in Christ. From this present evil age, we have been delivered. Don't live life following this present evil age which is passing away. Do not submit to regulations or ascetic decrees established by heretics. Do not be enslaved again. For remember verse 14. Our sins have been forgiven by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it fast to his cross. So whether it's legalism or antinomianism. Don't go back. Don't go back. Because again he says in verse 23, it will get you nowhere. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Martin Luther, before he became a Christian, beat himself blue in his cloister, trying to make himself acceptable to God. Did it help? Did it work? Did that make him acceptable? It deepened his sin and his rebellion, so that he said he hated God. There have been ascetics in the church who thought it was wrong to bathe. The more vermin comes off you when you move down the street, the holier they th- thought you were. He had one that lived for years on the top of a, a pillar. That's where he lived, way up there. What a holy man he must have been, people thought. Certain Gnostic groups forbade marriage. There are people who think that they must confess to a human priest. There are others who think that they must, not may, but must Fast on certain days or abstain from certain foods that are not forbidden by God and His Word. Now we're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. But man-made religious ordinances that seem wise and cause people to live with severity in matters where they have been freed, where you have been freed in Christ. And I doubt not that there are some people here who have ascetic tendencies Who think the more I abstain from certain things that are perfectly legitimate for the Christian, the holier I'm going to be. Or the more acceptable my heart is going to be with God. I know there are people here like that. Just as I know there are people also who are antinomians who think, well I'm accepted with God, it doesn't matter how I live. Both are wrong. Both set aside the gospel. Both set aside the cross. But ascetics believe that it's this this world in which we live, this matter. You see, matter is evil, they say. The body is evil. And Paul says this is self made religion. It is just self righteousness, it is simply human pride. And they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Who is the Father? who plucked out his eyes because his eyes constantly wanted to go to the dancing girls. And you know what happened? He plucked out his eyes and he still saw the dancing girls because they were here. The problem was not his eyes, the problem was his heart. McLaren makes an astounding and wonderful statement. Asceticism is more to man's taste than self-abandonment. Asceticism is more to man's taste than self-abandonment. Rather than abandoning abandoning your life to Christ and the cross, you still want to do something that sets aside Christ alone. And it's just another way that men avoid submitting to God's word and it looks very pious so never assume that someone is spiritual based on externals. You know how it is, you give up steak. And then if you're an ascetic, you say, well, I guess I can eat only vegetables. Now, I'm not saying you may not eat just vegetables, but I'm talking about to make yourself acceptable to God. You understand I'm not talking about what you choose to eat for your own personal reasons. So I can't eat steak, so I'll eat only vegetables, and then finally I'm just reduced to gruel. And I can't even put sugar on it. Or I can't wear silk, and so I guess I'll only wear cotton. And then if I really want to be holy, I'll find the scratchiest material that I can get. So in the Middle Ages, it was a hair shirt, right? You make yourself holy by scratching yourself and constantly itching. And you say, it's silly, yeah, but that's the human heart. We will go to any lengths to avoid Christ alone. That's the human heart. And I'll say two things about it. What you believe matters and will inevitably lead to a way of life. Either a joyful, free life in Christ... Or one in bondage either to antinomianism or legalism. What you believe will lead to a way of life. Your way of life shows your real commitments. Do you know that? You may say, oh I believe Christ, I trust Christ, but I'm not living for Christ. Your lifestyle, and I'm not saying with perfection, we're still sinners around here. But your life choices and your lifestyle, the direction of your life shows your ultimate intellectual commitments. Your heart commitments. And then I'll say this, having said with A.T. Robertson, deed follows creed. I'll also use Robertson who says, outward ceremonial ritualism may only cover a brook of scorpions in the heart. So with the Pharisees, you see, the outside of the cup may look very clean. We don't do this, we don't touch that, we don't, but the inside of the cup, can be seething and boiling with ugliness and sin. Has the inside of your cup been cleaned? Have you come to Jesus that the inside, that the heart might be cleansed by his shed blood? So what Paul says is not outward asceticism, but an inner life controlled by Christ that's what's needed. Don't deny the freedom of the cross. Yes, we should be self-disciplined, but that is a different matter than asceticism. Because ascetics fail to recognize that matter is good. God created the world and go back to Genesis and it was good and it was good and it was good. God says matter is good. And if you need further proof, God assumed flesh, human nature. So matter must be good, right? God assumed human nature. That's what the Gnostics couldn't handle. They couldn't have this idea of God becoming incarnate because they assumed that matter was evil. So whether it's Platonism or Gnosticism or New Age Spiritualism or just some messed up thought in your mind, you need to get it straight. Matter matters because God created created it. Beauty matters Order matters. God cares about material things. And he cares so much that he created a material world and when it fell, he came into it himself and assumed human nature and went to a cross and died for us. But then fourthly, the cross calls us to a new life. And just to mention, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, let's read them. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. All your aims, all your aims, paraphrases Lightfoot, like must center in heaven where reigns Christ who has thus exalted you enthroned on God's right hand. And so he says, be upward focused, be future focused, live life hidden with Christ in God. This is the life, the inner life, that is freedom in the cross. But that's next week. Now let's take some of the themes that we found here and let me just focus with you on a couple of applicatory comments a few applicatory comments first don't be intimidated by false teachers how do you how do you think how do the cults hold together well first let me ask this how does the church hold together the church holds together by recognizing that Christ is head that he is authoritative over us in his word that He has saved us by grace. That He loves us. We love Him therefore in return and we love one another. That's where mutual discipline comes from and caring for each other. That's how the church holds together. How does the cult hold together? I don't care what cult you turn to, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or, or others. It's a works righteousness system that holds together by false teaching, false living, and intimidation. Every one of them. Yes, Christ, but can you not see that you need our mystical experience? Or you need to beat on so many doors. We've got this list of regulations that you need to, to keep. That's how the cults hold together. And my friend Jay Adams has always said that the cults are the unpaid bills of the church. Because when a a person doesn't find a genuine Christian congregation that preaches grace and the love of God and we are held together by the truth of his word, then they go to some cult and they find a substitute, a poor, ugly substitute for it. Which is one of the many, many, many reasons that we need to be sure that we are submitting to the authority of Christ and really loving one another in this congregation which by the grace of God I do see. And the answer to the intimidation of false teachers is being grounded in Christ. Grounded in Christ. Now let me give you a warning. One place that I see this intimidation, and don't think that I'm identifying them with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, because I'm not. But one place in which I see this intimidation, most of all in our own community, is with the charismatic movement at least some forms of it it really appeals to people who are not well grounded in scripture and who are prone to subjectivism I remember Mr. MacArthur hearing him make a comment that he listened to the 700 club you know what I'm talking about So one day he was watching this television club. lady calls in and her washing machine won't work. So they healed her washing machine. She called back. She was thrilled. My washing machine has been healed. Then somebody called in with a car that was broken. And they prayed and they healed his car. And people were pretty thrilled. He said, you know, that's really strange. I know the Lord. I love him. I'm trying to serve him. I preach the gospel. And I have to take my car to the garage. (laughs) I think his point is well taken. I remember years ago reading that Oral Roberts had had this big tent meeting down in Texas. And he was healing people. But uh, one of these great winds came through and blew the tent over. And all these people were there with broken legs and broken arms. Or Roberts didn't heal them. People, they called the ambulance. All right. So get my point. Second blessings, higher life, mystical experiences. Poor thing, you don't speak in tongues. Yeah, you're a Christian, but there's so much more. Why don't you pray through and join with us in the delights of our ecstatic experience? And I'm saying to you, don't be intimidated by those sorts of things. Look to Christ. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything. Beware of the call. You need this extra thing in order to be accepted or in order really to enter into the fullness of the Christian life. You need this extra something. Watch out for the plus. And these people live constantly on the ups and downs of their personal experiences when Christians are called upon to live on the basis of the authority Of the head and king of the church. This is solid. This will never let you down. Never. And the only way we can resist false teaching and false living of whatever kind is to be people who are radically into the study of the Bible. And this is why we spend so much effort on it Sunday after Sunday and in various settings, multiple settings in the week. Otherwise we will establish our own autonomous religion, our own autonomous doctrine, our own autonomous lives, and the cost at the least will be to lose our assurance of faith. So that's what's happening in Colossae. This fad has come and it's being proclaimed throughout the church. And I want to say to you, I have no interest in preaching the latest fad or sophistry. The edifice of our theology and of our lives must be built upon the sacred scripture. All other ground is sinking sand. I remember Dr. Criswell giving an illustration years ago. He had read somewhere of a terrible train wreck. Destroyed many lives. It was in the day when they actually used uh, flags, you know. Handheld Flags. Engineer, why did you go through, why did you, why did you go through the red flag? Well it wasn't a red flag, it was a white flag. No, the other guy said, it was a red flag, not a white flag. No, it was a white flag, said the engineer. And so they went and they got the flag and they looked at it. And they saw that it had been red, but the color had gone out of it. And that's a parable of modern preaching. Preaching. We used to preach the blood on the basis of the book, but now all the color's gone out of it, and it's passing philosophy and speculative fads, and what appeals to people, and where does it end up? Train wrecked lives. Every time. I want to read a prayer to you. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish Presbyterian, actually comes from a letter, but Faith Cook has taken his letters and put many of them into prayers, and they're absolutely wonderful because his letters are so poetic. And Rutherford prayed this prayer. It's a pastor's prayer. You know what I'm praying for you? You know what I'm praying for myself? For Jeff, for Christopher, Joel. Here's the pastor's prayer Wood and meadows, hills and trees, witness bear with me. Heard you not a pastor's prayer, marked his lonely plea, bowed beneath a midnight sky, keeping faithful tryst, till I drew a meeting fair between my flock and Christ. With the angel there I strove, strove and did prevail. Strengthened by the grace of God that I might not fail. Still, for my poor flock I pray, lest the wolf devour. Or some hireling leave the sheep in a needy hour. God of pity, hear this plea, humbly on you cast Bring them through a cloudy day, safely home at last. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. My prayer is that we together will stand fast, hold to Christ, hold to the truth, hold to the head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's people said...